Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of September 2023 and this is episode 314. On today's podcast, I talked to Dr Tony Cowan about his recent book, Holding Out. This book examines the German Army and Operational Command during 1917. It is published by Cambridge University Press. Tony spoke to me from his home in South London. Tony, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and in particular the German High Command? Uh, yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Tom, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's great to be uh, to be, have the opportunity of talking to your listeners. So I've been interested in military history since school days, really, and perhaps originally because my dad was in the army. And like so many people, uh, my serious interest in the First World War began from researching a relative, which was actually my, my dad's father, uh, Alexander Comrie Cowan, um, known as Comrie. So Comrie was about to leave school in summer 1914 and go to university, after which he would have joined the family papermaking company in Scotland. But instead, he joined the army on the 7th of August 1914. So that's, you know, three days or whatever after the British declared war. And he wasn't even the first in the family to enlist. So by 1917, which is the year I'm really looking at in my book, he was a 20-year-old company commander in the 16th Battalion Royal Scots in 34th Division. And just before the Battle of Arras, so um, this was about the 7th of April, I think, 1917, he led a reconnaissance raid to identify the enemy unit opposite, and the raid succeeded. They captured a German soldier and they got him back to the uh, the British lines. But Comrie himself was wounded and captured by the Germans. So a couple of days later, on the 9th of April, uh, the Battle of Arras proper started. It was very successful, as uh, many of your listeners will know. Um, and his own company um, found him, in fact, still lying in a German first aid post because they hadn't been able to evacuate him. So um, he was then brought back to the British lines, sent to hospital and so on. But sadly, because of the delay in treating him, um, his leg had to be amputated. And of course, that affected him for the rest of his life. And in many ways, he had a, uh, a sort of family life and a professional life and so on. Uh, but clearly, it affected him for the rest of his life. And in fact, he died aged only 41. So uh, this was um, back in 1937. So, of course, I never knew him, therefore. And f worth saying also that for his military services, uh, he was awarded the MC and bar, um, and the bar was for the uh, reconnaissance rate. So this story, uh, this man I never knew, my grandfather, his story has stayed in my mind, really, from when I started um, researching it. And that's behind all the work that I do. The work I do, my work on the German army and so on, is nothing directly related to his story. But I'm always thinking of him as being the human uh, reality uh, behind what I'm talking about. So going back to when I started uh, researching all of this, once I'd found out about his sort of basic story, I started reading around the subject, especially on um, 34th Division, and I discovered that when 34th Division went to France in January 1916, 
its first ever battle casualties was one of its brigadier generals who was killed by a sniper on his first visit to the front line. So in other words, this chap, this senior officer, is very close to the front and he's killed uh, on his first time there. And, you know, we've all heard or we had then all heard about shadow generals and generals not getting anywhere near the front and so on. Um, and this just went completely against everything I thought I knew about the First World War. And I was hooked uh, really from that moment. So at some point thereafter, I really can't remember when, um, I started learning German. I was, um, I was uh, working in the British Diplomatic Service at the time, and I was in Brussels. And um, German, uh, not many people will know this, but German is actually one of the national languages um, of Belgium. So I was able to convince the Foreign Office, well, um, teach me German, please. And and they did. So uh, obviously very, very much part time. Um, so uh, I learned German. And then um, I, I mentioned that when my grandfather led this raid, they'd captured a prisoner. And the prisoner was from a Bavarian regiment. So I wrote to the Munich archives saying, look, this is what happened to my grandfather. Do you happen to know anything about this? Uh, and they they were really kind. They they looked up their records and they found the report by the platoon which captured him, uh, and they transcribed that and sent it to me. So I, I mean, back in those days, sort of early nineties, there was a common view that you couldn't really study the German army in the First World War because all the records had been destroyed. And it is true that a lot of records were destroyed. But I realised from when the um, the Munich Archive wrote to me that actually a lot was still there. And in fact, it turns out, of course, now I've done a, a far more research on German archives. It turns out that as a 20th century bureaucratic army, uh, there are masses um, of records on the German army in Munich um, and um, elsewhere. So time went by and I then retired from the, the Foreign Office. And I decided to follow up my interest in the First World War by doing a PhD. So I thought my best contribution to, you know, helping understand the First World War, to developing the historiography, would be to use my, my language skills. And I was dithering between studying either the French army or the German army, and eventually I decided to uh, opt for the, the German army. So that's quite a long way of answering your question. So, um, yes, obviously, I do have to declare an interest that we did graduate from our PhDs at the same very, very, very long ceremony, <laughs> very, very stuffy room uh, in July 2017, which was a long time ago. Um, so anyway, but with that digression aside, so what is your book about? What does it argue? And um, what sort of aspects of the German army are you examining? Well, the book is based on my PhD, though it's developed a lot from there. Um, it's greatly expanded. I've added a lot of extra material which isn't in the PhD. But the reason for mentioning that is the title of the PhD begins Genius for War? Question uh, mark. And there was and there still is a traditional view that the German army from 1870 or even earlier, right through to 1945, was superior to its enemies and that much of this was due to characteristic German command techniques. So that seemed to me uh, simplistic. Um, at best, and just plain wrong at worst. When I began my serious study of the uh, of the First World War, it was when it was back in the early 1990s, as I mentioned, and revisionism about the British Army's uh, performance was, was flourishing. It was a really, really, really interesting time. So the view that the German Army was simply superior 
just seemed to me to ignore improvements which um, the British and the French armies had made in their performance. And it seemed to ignore the fact that in some ways, actually the British anyway, um, were ahead of the, the Germans. But also there were, there were specific problems with some of the literature, uh, which is most positive about the, uh, the German army. I mean, an obvious example, which you'll certainly have read, and I'm sure many of your readers, your listeners will have as well, is uh, GC wins uh, if Germany attacks. And in some ways, that, that's a really excellent book and a good introduction, but it does rely excessively on the memoirs of the chief German defensive expert, Fritz von Losberg, uh, which are themselves flawed. So basically, from in my PhD and then now in the book, I wanted to look in more detail at how German command actually worked, um, as opposed to it, its reputation. And from because of my um, interest in what my grandfather had been through, I'd always um, sort of focused really on the, the Battle of Arras. And I decided to build on that uh, and to analyse German command through a case study of what was going on in uh, early 1917, how uh, uh, the German army higher levels of command actually handled their defence against the Battle of Arras and the Nivelle Offensive, which sort of April, May 1917. And so what I've done is, what, what I want to do is to see how German command actually worked rather than what its reputation is or what its doctrine said it was doing. And so I've come up with a um, an idea that they faced five main command tasks um, in early 1917. Now, in the book, um, I go into detail about that. I, and I won't do that here because um, I think it's probably easier to read about than, than uh, to talk about. Anyway, the first task is coordinating the masses of troops, material and different levels of command needed to fight a modern battle. And one of the, one of the problems faced there is what balance do you strike between decentralization aimed at exploiting fleeting opportunities and coping with chaos and control, which you need to exert to avoid chaos? So in this part of the book, I've looked at four uh, traditional, what are seen as traditional principles of German command. That's mission command of Trug's tactic. Uh, in other words, decentralization, the relationship between commanders and their chiefs of staff, creation of a Schwerpunkt, or what I've, which I've translated as point of main effort. Though there are other ways of translating it. So point of main effort and maintaining the chain of command as the fourth of the uh, four traditional principles that I've looked at. So command task two in my um, system is selecting the right men for command positions. And that covers the role of personality in command. And I'll say a bit more about that uh, later on. Command task three is reducing the uncertainty and the chaos of war to an acceptable level where what are seen as what the Germans see as their superior command techniques can exploit the opportunities while avoiding the chaos. And the two principal means for that are intelligence on the enemy and communications uh, relaying uh, reports and orders um, between the command and German troops. Fourth command task, uh, learning. So most of us now would accept the Western Front might have been static geographically, but it certainly was not static in terms of changes going on, tactical changes, organisational changes, and so on. And therefore, everyone was continuously learning. So that's the fourth command task. And for the German army, the focus is um, what's crucial to tactical success, the uh, combined arms battle between infantry, artillery and aviation. 
And they realize in late 1916 that in this area, they've actually fallen behind the British and the French. And then the fifth command task is slightly different because actually this is the end to which the others are means, and it's winning. Um, two, winning's got two meanings, really, at this time. First of all, crucially, of course, to prevent the, the Entente, the British and the French, from breaking through. And secondly, to inflict more casualties than uh, they suffered. And in this part, I look at the quality of the German army, uh, including uh, an important new system that it had introduced to manage attrition. So, uh, as I say in the book, I go into much more detail about why I've evolved these uh, these um, five as the main command tasks. And I also argue that although this is a case study of early 1917, these command tasks and the findings from them actually apply much more broadly than that to the German and indeed to the British and the French armies throughout the First World War. And there's some reason for saying uh, later as well. Now, it's fair to say that not everyone agrees um, with my thinking on these command tasks, but there is a lot of um, material backing them up. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of um, stuff on the um, thinking that the Germans were using and so on. So I'm hoping that even people who dispute uh, these command tasks or don't agree with them will actually find the supporting evidence that I've quoted uh, useful for their own research. And on that uh, issue of, of, of um, identifying those people who may disagree with you, how dare they? Who are they and what have they said about this period? And how does your sort of uh, perspective, I suppose, differ from what they've said? Um, in terms of uh, in terms of basically what sort of why am I writing this book, I suppose? Um, well, I suppose there, uh, there are sort of two views about the, um, the German army. And there's the question of whether or not um, the, 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 there's a school which thinks it is superior. Uh, and there's a school which says, no, actually, no one believes that um, anymore. But generally, um, one of the reasons why um, I've called the book Holding Out, there are three strands to that title, in fact. So the first um, strand is... Um, uh, how were the Germans able to hold out for four years, uh, over four years, against increasing Allied numerical and material uh, superiority? The second is how were they able to hold out against this specific offensive? Uh, and the third is um, the obligation on all um, ranks uh, to hold out personally, um, both the, the high commanders had to hold out and the individual soldiers had to hold out. And of course, that's also true of um uh, British and, and French soldiers as well. So um, in terms of the first strand of that, how, uh, how did Germany hold out for, um, for over four years? The German army is seen as a sort of, um, it, it's seen as one of the main mainstays of German ability to hold out. It's seen as a motor of the war and so on. But in addition to that, it's a sort of huge um, and politically um, important uh, organization and it's, it's been considerably misunderstood. Um, so the situation has improved since uh, I started my PhD, and there are important books by Jonathan Boff, for instance, and by uh, Holger Afflerbach, um, which uh, talk about uh, the German army. But it is still relatively understudied uh, compared with, uh, say, the, all the work that's been put into the, um, the British army uh, on the uh, First World War, and to a lesser extent on, on the French army. Um, and that, that's particularly true at the sort of organisational levels I'm looking at in my book, on uh, which are basically um, army group, 
army corps and division so it's not the actual top level of command it's sort of one level down from the top but i do look at what's going on at the top level and slightly below as well but that's the focus it's army group army corps and division in organizational terms and the the um, what i'm aiming to do uh, and this is where it doesn't to some extent it doesn't really matter whether people agree with my theory of these command tasks or not because there is so much evidence about the german army in the book um the book provides a comparison with all the research work that has been done on uh, the british and the french armies and it's actually it's quite modular in some ways uh, and what i mean by that is that many of its chapters could actually be uh, books in their own right so for instance uh, i've got a chapter on german intelligence uh, that corresponds with jim beach's book on uh, uh, on british intelligence his book uh, hague's intelligence i've got a chapter on communications which corresponds with brian hall's book communications and british operations on the western front um, and i've got a chapter on learning which corresponds with Amy Fox's um, learning to fight. And so what, what I've aimed to do is to, th this slice of command I'm looking at, army groups to division, is relatively understudied. More work has been done on the higher levels of OHL, the sort of political side of it, and also the lower levels, um, the uh, you know morale and things like that, but less on, on the German side anyway, on these sort of operational levels. And so what I've done, because I've it's a case study and I've, it's looking at a relatively short time period, that's allowed me to look at a, quite a lot of different issues in considerable depth. Uh, and that's where, again, if people don't like the command task idea, uh, and of course they're wrong not to like it, um, there, there is still all this material that hopefully they'll be able to use to, to further their own research. And when we look at that operational sort of high command army group um, corps and division, who are the main players that that, that those sort of ranks of the army? And is there anybody that we would know who are sort of household names, so to speak? Um, well, of course, the household names are the people right at the top, um, Hindenburg and Ludendorff. So um, they're the people from uh, late August 1916 who are heading up German Supreme Army Command, or OHL, um, as, it's, as it's called. Generally, the focus of my work has been um, below that. Um, though I do, of course, look at how what sort of orders OHL is giving and what sort of uh, what its relations are with the next levels down. In terms of are there household names, um, I mean, there are people like Crown Prince at, at the sort of army group commander level on the Western Front. You've got Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, the subject of uh, Jonathan Boff's book. Um, you've got uh, Crown Prince Wilhelm, uh, the Kaiser's son. And then you've got um, uh, Duke Albrecht of Württemberg. So these are all heirs to the thrones of their respective kingdoms uh, within uh, Germany. But I'm not sure you would regard them as being um, household names. Uh, I find that that's it's a very good question, actually. Um, I find it difficult to answer because, because I've been focusing on these people and, and the personality side of it has been, has been a major aspect of my research. I've been focusing on these guys for about the last 15 years. So, of course, their household names in my household, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm expecting them to be in anyone else's um, household. So basically what I've, uh, I've, what I've looked at is commanders, as I've just been mentioned, um, and general staff officers. Um, and I'm looking at them, uh, I'm looking at the command teams at these different levels of command, particularly at the divisional level. And command teams, uh, what I mean by that is the commander, 
and his chief general staff officer. And there's quite a lot um, I'm able to say about how successful the German army was in establishing and maintaining these command teams. Uh, and there's some absolutely uh, terrific stuff um, uh, you, you can find in people, um, uh, German officers at the time and just after the war, criticizing each other for performance and so on. So I've never actually been thrown out of German archives for laughing too much, but it's been a pretty close-run thing um, on occasion. So um, who else is there? So the, you've got the commanders and the staff officers at each level. Obviously, at the top level, you've got the, the Kaiser and his senior uh, courtiers, uh, and that's particularly relevant when it comes to personnel selection. So again, back to the, the personnel side of it. Um, it's no, no coincidence, in fact, that my chapter on uh, on personality, I've called it, uh, is actually the longest in the book. And it's probably the one I most enjoyed writing because it is it is just so interesting uh, what's going on. So, um, I mean, there's this myth, this partly going back to the genius for war um, argument, that German officers, and in particular the German general staff, were technocrats of war. Um, and many of them, of course, were. I mean, they're, you know, they're very able men within the field that they're focusing on. Uh, but of course, they're also human. I mean, they're professional in the sense that they, they develop their, um, their work systematically. They learn about it. They push it forward in that sense. But they're also professional in the sense that this is how they earn their daily bread. Or this is how they make their career. And of course, as soon as you bring in that meaning of professionalism, you're looking at them as human beings. You're looking at people... Um, uh, who've got human foibles like ambition, who want to be promoted, who are worried about money, um, who have friends, who have enemies, who are networking, etc., etc., etc. how all these things um, link up. And so one of the things I did enjoy doing, and if I was going to um, develop this, it would be good to do more of it, um, is the influence of networks at a senior level um, in the army. Um, and I've got uh, rather a good, I think it's rather good, um, case study of a particular network in it's sort of it's after the Battle of Arras in fact it's in sort of May and June um, uh, 1917 and you can see these two aspects of professionalism playing out there uh, there's the there are genuine military uh, issues at stake uh, but in addition to that there are these two networks of officers who are basically clashing uh, and in among there um, are uh, sort of personal um, personal relationships, um, patron-client relationships, personal animosities, and so on and so forth. So it's 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 terrific. And one of the other things I've looked at, and this is one way in which I uh, developed the book um, from my PhD, uh, is the pervasive influence of uh, officers in the German Imperial Guard. It's just absolutely extraordinary um, how many of them. There are. And again, I mean, if I have time, it'd be nice to uh, do more about that as well. Um, yes. So that's probably basically it, I should I think, on, on you know, who is there in the command. But uh, household names, apart from the obvious ones, it would be difficult to name ones that perhaps that your listeners have heard of. Yes, yeah, I think I think that was a, a bit of a bit of a, a desperate question on my <laughs> No, it's it's a it's a very good question actually. Um, so I must uh, think further about that. Well, that's your that's your homework after today. Now I'm going to pick the next two questions together because I think they they work quite well. So your book looks at the period from the end of, end of the Battle of Verdun to the start of the Battle of Third Ypres. So that's roughly from the winter of 1916 to the 
August of 1917. Now, what, what military and strategic challenges did the operational commanders face over this period? And, and what did they do to overcome them? I'm sort of thinking how they responded to Arras and then of the, the Chemin de Dame offensive in um, sort of the spring of 1917. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the reason for choosing that period, um, it was easy actually to, to choose the beginning of it. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the main reason I chose this period was because of my interest in the Battle of Arras and going back to uh, my grandfather's um, experience there. But in terms of why I've chosen the particular period you name, it, it goes from um, the Allied or the Entente uh, planning for 1917, which took place at a conference right at the end of the Battle of the Somme. So it's sort of mid-November um 1916, just before the Battle of the Ankh. In fact, I think the Ankh started while this was going on, giving Haig a much needed sort of um, propaganda victory, which he could use at this conference. So that's when it starts. And that's pretty clear why it should start then. It was more difficult to work out when to end, in fact, um, because obviously I could have ended at uh, when the spring fighting ended. Uh, which is sort of at the end of May uh, 1917. But it wasn't necessarily clear that it had ended then. There's a lot of subsequent action going on. But if you take it into uh, June, of course, you, but you've got the Battle of Messine at the, in early June. So I do cover that as well. And, and at the end, I decided to stop in mid-July um, for two reasons. The French official history, uh, the, their definition of the battle that they're fighting uh, ends it on, I forget the exact date, it's the 15th or 16th of July. And by coincidence, also on almost ex either that day or the next day, the Germans decide, OK, well, we are definitively moving the defensive Schwerpunkt on the Western Front um, from the spring fighting to Flanders, where it's obvious that the British are about to attack. And they do attack. The preparatory bombardment for Third Deep starts a week later. And then the actual assault um, starts on the 31st of July. So that's basically why I'm covering this period, um, mid-November 1916 to mid-July 1917. It's the Allied planning for the offensives, the actual offensives, and then fallout from them until the um, focus clearly shifts um, further north uh, to um, Flanders. But I'm also, uh, I mean, one of the other reasons I studied this actually the um, the uh, I mean, as everyone knows, there's been much more focus on things like uh, the Battle of the Somme. This is from the British point of view, from the Battle of the Somme, Third uh, Ypres, and so on, and less focus on Arras. That's been partly remedied recently. Actually, there's been some good work done on Arras uh, since I uh, began my work on this. But the Nivelle Offensive is still very much understudied. So I, I thought that it was worth looking at that. Um, and it's also worth saying these were actually huge events. Uh, I mean, the French had 60, 60 divisions waiting to go into battle, compared with 49 in August 1914. And the British had the same number of divisions on the first day at Arras in the front line that they had on the 1st of July 1916. So, you know, these are really big um, events. And the Germans were in no doubt about the significance of the offensive before it started and the significance of their achievement um, in defeating it once it had ended, especially defeating the French side of this, which was the, the main Allied effort. I mean, one of the uh, OHL, Supreme Army Command's chief operations officer, says 
we achieved something absolutely extraordinary in this defeat, in, in defeating the, um, this offensive uh, in early 1917. I should actually, there's one point I, I should make clear. Um, although this was a case, my book is a case study of uh, the German defence in these battles, uh, but it actually ranges much further um, afield, afield than that. So um, I look in deriving the command task, I look at, well, what is pre-war thinking about these issues? What are people like Clausewitz saying? What are people like Moltke, the older, the older saying? Um, and I also look at, well, what does experience in the early war period show, 1914 to 1916? So uh, you get a lot of nitty gritty on command, command changes in 1917, but the book actually ranges much um, further afield than that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm saying that its findings apply uh, much more broadly uh, than just early 1917. So turning to uh, the second part of your question on, well, what sort of um, challenges did the uh, German high command face and how did they try to get over them? Well, the, um, obviously they'd beaten off uh, the Allied uh, Somme offensive in 1916, but at the end of that year, they're, they're in a pretty desperate state and they've suffered enormous casualties by then. Um, but the real damage to the army is more in terms of its morale and its quality um, than in, in terms of its actual size, which in, in fact is still increasing in this period. So, I, I mean, a lot of your listeners will have come across um, the German army's official comment that what still remained of the old peace-trained German infantry bled to death on the Somme. Uh, and for the first time, there's actual doubt about Germany's going to win the war. So more specifically, I've got a, quite a lot of statistics and so on in the book. Um, and just to try to sort of flesh out some of the more anecdotal uh, stuff that uh, I'm, I'm uh, talking about as well. And in this particular case, there were 118 German divisions which fought either at Verdun or at the Somme or both. Um, and 27 of those divisions were had become of concern by the end of 1916, uh, early 1917. Concern, lack of performance, concern, lack of morale, concern, disciplinary problems. So 27 out of 118 divisions which fought at Verdun and or the Somme were of concern. That's about one fifth of them. And those are the ones we know about. So the actual uh, total should be um, uh, should be um, higher than that. Uh, and so again, in terms of the problems that the Germans um, uh, face at, at this period, of course, they're fighting a multi-front war. And even though the um, uh, the Eastern Front is a sideshow by 1917 uh, and uh, declining, they can't ignore it. Um, one of the things going on there, even after the revolution, is it's not really clear what's happening. Does the Russian Revolution favour uh, the Allies, does it favour the Germans? Is it both? Is it strengthening Russia? Is it weakening Russia? So they really don't know. And as a result of that, they, they can withdraw troops from the Eastern Front. And in particular, they can um, they can withdraw the better troops. They can't strip it. They do have to keep really quite a large um, army uh, there. So that's also a problem. Um, and then, uh, I mean, in terms of the actual the strain the army is under, this is a really major factor in launching uh, unrestricted submarine warfare in um, February 1917. So German grand strategy is to hold out on land against what they know is going to be a very major uh, Entente offensive in spring 1917, hold out on land, 
while um, unrestricted submarine warfare does its uh, does its stuff, which they think, and totally wrongly, uh, is going to take five months to lock uh, to knock Britain out of the war. So that that's uh, generally the plan. And of course, this uh, decision to launch um, unrestricted submarine warfare ends up by being disastrous because it brings America into the war as a, a what ends up as being a decisive factor um, in in uh, the eventual Allied victory. And I say more about all of this uh, in my book. I mean, the book is about the Western Front, but you cannot ignore the Eastern Front and what's going on um, elsewhere. So Jim, I'm in a bad way by the end of 1916. Uh, and of course, the, um, the high command is taking steps to try to uh, improve uh, what's going on. So th they do quite a lot of different things um, here at, at different sort of levels of war. They um, promulgate new defensive tactics. This is sort of mobile defense. Don't stick uh, rigidly to the, the front line. Um, they improve training uh, on these tactics. Um, in fact, the training is not just for, um, it's partly for formations, for sort of divisions and so on, but it's also, interestingly, for um, command. So this is something, I don't know whether the French did this or not, but the British certainly didn't. The um, Germans in sort of January, February 1917 introduced uh, divisional command training courses. And, and the core idea is to train divisional commanders and their chief staff officers. But in fact, they end up training a load of other people as well, artillery commanders, regimental commanders, allies, and so on. And so the aim is to train these guys um, on the new tactics and to spread uniformity and best practice throughout not only the army on the Western Front, but also increasingly on the Eastern Front and throughout um, the Allies. Courses not at all perfect, um, not much time to do it before the offensive starts, doubts by some of the participants about the actual level of tuition and so on. But it's a major in, uh, innovation. Uh, and as I said, it's something that the British um, didn't do. Um, so new tactics, uh, new training, they increase the number of divisions available on the Western Front. They actually raise quite a lot of new divisions, though there's a real problem about the quality of some of them. The, as I said, they've withdrawn the best troops from the um, uh, Eastern Front. Um, they withdraw to the Hindenburg Line, which shortens the front and saves uh, quite a few um, divisions. Um, they reorganize the army on the Western Front. They set up um, a system. Army groups at this stage are not completely new, but they now spread them across the Western Front. So there are three. There's um, Army Group Ruprecht facing the British, Army Group German Crown Prince facing the French, um, and then the third one, Army Group Albrecht on the quiet sector of the front, uh, which can act as a sort of res um, reserve uh, for the other bits. Um, and there's also a, a further command reshuffles at different level, which I've talked about in the book, um, and importantly, they introduce um, unified command of the air forces. And it's striking that the air forces are one of the success stories um, on the German side, uh, able to um, take the fight to the enemy uh, right to the end of the war, uh, where the German army is increasingly uh, collapsing as time goes by. But the air forces remain in the fight. Uh, and again, the German experts on this draw a distinction between um, what it was able to do in the First World War and the collapse of the Luftwaffe in the, the Second World War. So that, that's a story which probably needs, uh, needs more um, telling. So what else do they do? They aim to increase the ratio of 
firepower to manpower. This is linked to the new tactics. Um, they've already cut the number of infantry um, in divisions. Um, they launch a thing called the Hindenburg program to increase uh, arms production. I, actually, this starts by they're really shooting themselves in the foot to start with because uh, this uh, super duper new program begins by causing absolute chaos in armaments production and takes a while to sort out and actually improve things. Um, but they are introducing new weaponry at this time. Uh, I mean, again, on the, the Air Force, um, possibly probably the most significant new weapon of all um, is the Albatross fighter, um, which um, helps the Germans re-establish um, um, re-establish air superiority. Uh, so other new equipment they introduce is new artillery equipment, um, longer range uh, field guns and so on. Uh, but it takes quite a while for that to get to actually get into service. Some of it not introduced till um, early 1918, in fact. Uh, and they also introduce uh, a light machine gun, the MG0815, uh, a very imperfect um, wartime uh, improvisation, uh, welcomed, but with severe problems as well, uh, and by no means distributed to uh, the whole army uh, when the spring 1917 fighting began. But you can see all the things I've talked about. This is a really serious attempt to improve the German army, and each of these steps was undoubtedly flawed, um, but they did collectively um, improve uh, its performance. Uh, and there is a, a, a thought um, which you can see in the British official history, that actually um, th these steps, and particularly according to the British official history, the new tactics helped the German army survive um, the spring 1917 fighting in a way that it uh, might actually not have done otherwise. So on that, would you conclude that the German performance during 1917 was, quote, a benchmark of military X or not? Um, well, we've, we, we've talked a bit about this, I think, um, already. Um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And as I said, my PhD thesis began with uh, the, um, the, its title begins Genius War question mark. I've rather moved away um, from that um, in the book. And the reason for that is uh, that some people strongly agree there is a belief that uh, the German army throughout the ages uh, was superior. And others think that's just a straw man. No one really believes that anymore. Uh, and there are, as I say, strong schools of thought um, follow both of those um, arguments. But whatever the truth is, it, it's pretty clear that at the period I'm writing about, um, the German army does not display a genius for war. And in fact, um, towards the end of 1916, when Hindenburg and Ludendorff are trying, taking their steps to um, promote the, uh, to, to try to improve performance and so on, they argue that uh, in, in important ways, the German army has fallen behind the enemies. I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but um, they particularly noted that uh, the British and the French were superior in cooperation between the infantry, artillery and aviation, which, uh, as we were saying, the, you know, the crucial part of combined arms tactics. Um, and as I mentioned, they're, they're a year ahead of um, introducing uh, light machine guns, uh, the, the British and the French are. So um, older literature tends to see the introduction of new tactics in particular as being a, a crucial step. And I mentioned what the British official history says here. Um, they uh, a major step forward, according to this older literature, uh, and in fact, the foundation of modern tactics. Well, that I can't comment on, whether it's foundation of modern tactics. But it's very striking that in defeating the Entente Spring Offensive, uh, Arras, the Nivelle Offensive, 
the German army suffers really, really serious and lasting damage. Uh, and in the book, I've got a, a counterfactual arguing that if the British and the French had taken better uh, command decisions, um, they probably have inflicted a severe defeat on the Germans and possibly even uh, uh, brought about a general crisis. So although the Germans won these two battles, in other words, they, their fifth command task, which I define as being winning, that they were successful, they suffered uh, very serious damage. And in addition, after the battles of Arras, um, although they, the Battle of Arras and the Nivelle Offensive, although they hold off, um, for instance, the uh, British offensive at Third Ypres, they actually suffer in the rest of the year six very serious local defeats. Um, I'm just quickly to rattle them off. Messines in June, Verdun, Second Battle of Verdun in August, um, three battles in Third Ypres in September and October, and then the Battle of Malmaison um, in, uh, also in October. And at each of these battles, there are problems relating to some of the core features of uh, the new tactics, uh, particularly the question of how, uh, making withdrawals and the question of how to make um, counterattacks. So we used to talk about the learning curve and so on. And that, that phrase has rather gone out of fashion now because it, it implies um, there's a, a sort of smooth upward curve. Um, and in the case of the British, smooth upward curve of British performance. But uh, clearly, learning isn't smooth and wasn't smooth, and it certainly wasn't um, in the German army. So um, it's uneven between different formations and different units, it's un uneven between different times. Uh, and it's perfectly possible for uh, units and armies to either mislearn or to forget. And again, in the book, I go into detail about some of the repeated mistakes that the German army is making throughout this period, some of which go back to uh, pre-war uh, problems. Uh, and it's just really striking that they're still um, making uh, these mistakes. So when I sum up the German army's performance of its five command tasks, I describe that as being patchy. And in some ways, that's a very mundane thing to say. Um, what I mean by that is the performance, their fulfillment of these uh, five command tasks was certainly not disastrous, but it wasn't perfect either. But to some extent, and although that definitely shows the German army had no genius for war, at least at this period, um, it wasn't incompetent, uh, and nor was it corrupt, uh, sort of morally corrupt, if you like, as some modern scholarship um, tends to, to suggest. It, it, it wasn't perfect, um, but it didn't need to be. It didn't really even need to be good. Um, it just needed to be better than the enemy, or if you want to be, um, uh, if you want to be cynical, um, to be not as bad as the enemy. So that's really uh, where it is. I definitely don't think it's a benchmark. Um, they were good at some things, um, bad at some things, uh, ahead of the enemy in some things, behind them in some things. And my final question um, is: Where can people learn more about your work? Uh, well, first thing is buy the book, obviously. Um, only £30. Sorry, this is a commercial break, by the way. But I don't know if that's allowed on this podcast. Um, buy the book, only £30 for the hardback, slightly less of that for the electronic version. And there'll be a paperback in a couple of years' time. But uh, obviously, no listener is going to want to wait two years for the paperback. So um, in addition, I've got a website which I've set up to support the book. And there's a lot more information on that, which I couldn't include because of the detail. So I mentioned that there's 
a lot of statistics um, in the book. And what I've put up on the uh, website is this information um, which supports how I derived uh, those statistics. It's at www.tonycowan.com. And it's a pleasure to thank Tom in his presence um, for the help that you've given me setting it up including finding that domain name, which I'm really, really pleased with. So in terms of that's sort of where I am at the moment, um, the book, uh, the paperback, uh, the website. But in terms of future projects, I'm working on a couple of joint articles with friends, um, one on the Nival Offensive. And I mentioned I've got a, um, a counterfactual in the book on um, whether the offensive could ever have succeeded. So um I'm going to be looking at that in more detail about what might have happened, what might have gone better. And the second joint article is on German intelligence, comparing German and British um, intelligence. Hopefully that will be a series of articles, but in the first place, we're just going to look at the basics. And then uh, in the slightly longer term, I'm researching a possible volume for the Army Records Society on German views of the British Army from 1898 to 1918. Obvious why up to 1918, 1898 is when they first posted a permanent military attaché to London. I'm still scoping that out. Um, I've got a lot of material already, but I need to find more for the earlier period. So watch this space. Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS21. Until next time.